Welcome to the Dayspring Community Church Podcast. Check out our website at dayspringonline.org. And now, Dr. Matt Friedemann. If you turn in that Bible of yours to Acts chapter 9. I want to give you a little bit of context here. Uh, There's some great events that have happened. Jesus has ascended into heaven. Obviously, he he suffered, was crucified. Uh, Then he rose from the dead. And then he ascends into heaven. But before he ascends, he says, listen, I'm going to send you another one like myself. And on that day, history begins taking a whole different turn. And that was the day of Pentecost. And we celebrate a big time in this church. We have a woman's conference that weekend. And then we're going to have uh, uh, Dr. Johnson speak to us on Sunday morning of that weekend. We're going to have dinner on the grounds. It's just a fun, hilarious day at Dayspring. But we celebrate that great day of Pentecost. And then we keep moving through Acts. And we're calling this the Acts of the Spirit. Moving up to uh, our time at Pentecost, we are talking about these acts of the Spirit in such a way that we recognize that the Spirit is on the march. Life is different now because of that Spirit. We give great praise to God for it. Now, this is what a, a gentleman named William Larkin, who wrote a commentary on Acts, said about this. This very chapter, Acts 9. The most important event in human history, apart from the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, is the conversion to Christianity of Saul of Tarsus. If Saul had remained a Jewish rabbi, we would be missing 13 of 27 books of the New Testament and Christianity's early major expansion to the Gentiles. Humanly speaking, without Paul, Christianity would probably be of only antiquarian or arcane interest, like the Dead Sea Scrolls or, say, the Samaritans. I'd say, okay, I almost agree, but not quite. Because I think there are three great events. Obviously, the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. We'll put that all into one. But then there's Pentecost, and I'm going to call that number two. Then there's a conversion of Saul, and I'll call that number three. But let us never forget what God did in Acts 2. And he wants to do it again. Amen? Amen. And over and over again, that we might be filled with the Spirit of Almighty God and spill out with that Spirit all over our globe. So, I'd like for you to stand in reverence to the Word of God. Acts chapter 9, verse 1 to 22, and Caleb is reading for us this morning. Thank you, son. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from the heavens shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three, for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And as he, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hand on him, so that he might regain his sight. 
But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to you, your saints, at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you so much for everything you've done for us. Thank you for the many miracles and um, for sending your son to die for us, Lord. Help us to be like Ananias in this, that we could um, just have faith in everything we do and just not be scared for our own safety. Help us to be like Paul, to see um, the truth of your word and uh, of your actions, God, that we would be able to proclaim your name to everyone. Your name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. If you've ever written a term paper, or if you've ever written a a dissertation, or a thesis, or or frankly just written any kind of short, brief thing, you know you can't cover everything. So as an author of a paper, a dissertation, you've got to make some choices. What do I cover? What do I leave out? Now Luke had to do this very thing. When he's writing his Gospels, Jesus did a lot more things than you see in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John put together. There are just some things that have been left out, but apparently the Spirit gave wisdom to Luke, for instance, and said, these are the things I want in this gospel. Now, we suspect Luke the historian uh, made these same kind of decisions when he's writing the account of Acts. So there's some things you put in, there's some things you leave out. And I think it would it's, it's very worth the question, no matter what's there, why did the author, why did the spirit, who's the author over the author, want this story in this account? And so, why Acts 9? I think there's some good reasons why Acts 9 is here. And I just got four brief reasons this morning. But the first one is simply this. I think from the very get-go in Luke's account, he wants people to know that God can save anybody. No matter how bad you are, God can save you. And it may well happen that he's going to surprise you with that salvation. I think Saul here was surprised. And by the way, I love uh, C.S. Lewis's, the title of the book, Surprised by Joy. He says, I was surprised. This is an amazing account here of the Lord taking the worst and doing an amazing thing in his life. Now, having said that, I appreciate the writer named Russell Moore. He's, he's probably the leading voice for the Southern Baptist. I think he's actually a Mississippi native. He called my radio program one day and said, hey, uh, I was interviewing him on a book on adoption. 
And he, he reminded me, he's from Mississippi, and he told me he'd read some of my columns before, and so it was an incredible thing. But he has risen to the, to the top of evangelical leadership in this country and has a lot of provocative things to say. Uh, back in the year 2012, he wrote a column for the New York Times. And he recounted a conversation that he and some of his colleagues had, I think they were students at that time, that they had with the famous theologian named Carl F.H. Henry. Now, Carl Henry was one of probably the leading theologian for Billy Graham. You might not know Carl Henry, but you probably know Billy Graham. And Carl Henry was doing a lot of the deep thinking with and for Billy Graham. Having said that, they were around Carl Henry, and they asked him a question. How dismayed are you about the future of the church? He says, do you have any hope for the coming generation of the church? Because they were in dismay. I thought, it's pitiful. It looks like it's going to be pitiful for a century to come. And they just kind of put that in front of Carl Henry. And this is what he said. You speak as though Christianity was genetic. Of course there's hope for the coming generation. Of course there's hope for future evangelicalism. But the leaders of the next generation might not be coming from the current evangelical establishment. He said, they're probably still pagans. He says, who knew that Saul of Tarsus was to be the great apostle to the Gentiles? Who knew that God would raise up a C.S. Lewis and surprise him with joy? Or who knew that there'd be a Charles Colson that you know, all up in Richard Nixon's Watergate mess, would come out of that and be one of the leading evangelical voices in the world. Who knew? Who knew it was going to happen? But it happened. And then this is what he said. This is what Russell Moore said. You know, the next Jonathan Edwards might be the man driving in front of you with the Darwin Fish bumper decal. The next Charles Wesley might be a misogynist, profanity-spewing hip-hop artist right now. The next Billy Graham might be passed out drunk in a fraternity house right now. The next Charles Spurgeon might be making posters for a gay pride march right now. The next Mother Teresa might be managing an abortion clinic right now. You don't know what God's up to, but he's going to convert who he's going to convert. And there are always surprises of people who will say, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired right now in my life. I want Jesus. You'll be amazed who will say it. We've had many of you right here. You've been on crack cocaine and you said yes to Jesus. There have been people here that have been, frankly, passed out in the gutter that looked up and said, I want Jesus. I want to do something different in my life. There's people here, for instance, that had a 50-year sentence on this mandatory who Jesus says, enough of that. I'm getting you out to be a witness for my name now. Amen. Do you believe that's the kind of God we serve? Hallelujah. So don't be in dismay about evangelicals. Now, I'm, I'm kind of interested. Why did he choose Saul? I think there's some good reasons. For, first of all, I just know him, and you would know him because you've read his writings He's brilliant. Now, never get to the point where you dismiss good theology. You know, from time to time, we say, you know, the theologians say, we need to stop that and repent of it. Because good theology is good. And there's some deep thinkers that have thought these thoughts and piled up these thoughts for 2,000 years. And some of them paid their lives for these thoughts. 
So you don't ever dismiss good theology. This is what we know, is that God uses people with a brain. God used Moses. He had an excellent Egyptian education. He says, we're going to turn that Egyptian education, and we're going to use it for the glory of God. Watch this. And he does it. Uh, God uses folks like Isaiah, who when we read his book, his prophecy, oh my goodness, we recognize that came from a supremely educated man. And God used that education to give you 66 books of a prophetic gospel. Uh, You look at someone mm, like Augustine in early Christian history, brilliant mind, or a a Martin Luther, or a John Calvin, or a John Wesley. These were brilliant men, and God needed that brilliance and that good theology to do significant things in the world today. Good theologians are good. And we need people in the world that can think theologically as well as preach, as well as go out to the abortion clinic, as well as go out to the prison. Never dismiss good theology. Because at the end of the day, we have to have it to survive as a people. I think Paul was brilliant. And God used that brilliance for his glory. I think the second thing here is simply this. He lived as a Jew in a Gentile world. He was raised... Uh, in a town that was largely Gentile. But he's raised as a Jew within that town. And so what happened there was he understood. For instance, he knew the languages. He knew Aramaic, Latin, Greek, and Hebrew, and maybe some other languages. So he knew languages. He knew the mores, the ways of the world in a Gentile world. And so when God saves him, he is able to go to that Gentile world and speak their language literally, And symbolically. So he used this guy that way. Third thing is this, and this is my favorite, by the way. He was simply the worst. I'm out at the abortion clinic on a a weekly basis. I'll tell you what. If there's such a thing as a worst, I have to think it's probably out there. I'm just thinking out loud here. It may be somewhere else. But I'm out there, and I'm thinking, man, these people. And... uh, It's just hard to get my mind around the doctor, around the owner of this clinic, and around the guards. You were spewing hatred. Uh, I mean, it's just hard to deal with. And I'm thinking, uh, all my time I'm out there, I'm thinking, man, these people, they're going to hell. And all the time, the Lord's saying, Matt, you need to pray for them so that I can transform them and use them for my kingdom. Can you imagine what would happen if one of these people turned around and decided to go my way? Hey, there was a movie that just came out about that. Did you see it? Called Unplanned, about how the best Planned Parenthood clinic director came to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, turned around and said, no more. In fact, now I'm a pro-life activist. It's a great movie. I haven't seen it. You need to see it. But yes, God can change someone like that and use him mightily in this world today. Amen? Amen. Now, the fourth one is important too. And the fourth reason I think Paul's chosen is because God is a projection God. You say, what's that mean? Well, projection goes something like this. And I've shared this with you uh, maybe last summer. But there's a guy named uh, Tony Lucadello. They call him baseball's greatest scout. And they call him that because he signed 52 youngsters who went on to be major leaners, and two of them ended up being Hall of Famers, who would eventually play Major League Baseball, but not only that, excel in Major League Baseball. And they, they just call Luca Della the best baseball scout ever. 
And they wrote a book about him. And the book is called Prophet of the Sandlots. And in that book, he talks about the four different kinds of scouts. He said the, the first kind is uh, what they call just poor. They seldom plan. They're lazy. They don't know what they're doing. They're just poor scouts. The second type are what they call the pickers. And they're the ones that can spot weaknesses. That's all they can do is, ah, oh, that guy, you know, doesn't have good strength or has a hitch in the swing or doesn't throw well. They, they, they point out weaknesses and choose people based on a lack of weaknesses or don't choose people because they got weaknesses. So 5% are poor scouts. 5% are pickers. This is 85% are performance scouts. So, man, they can really throw that ball fast and they clock it. And based on, wow, he's got a fastball, let's choose him. Or, wow, what a curveball, let's choose him. Or, wow, what a batting average, let's choose him. Or, man, have you ever seen his fielding percentage? Incredible. Let's pick him and put him in our outfield. And so they're performance scouts. But Luke Adela was a projector scout. And a projector says, you know, I see what he is right now. But more than that, I can see what he's going to be. Once we fix that flaw, uh, once we get him some good coaching, and what's kind of surprising is some guys play better against better competition. You think, wow, the, the competition gets stiffer, they play worse. No, some guys, if you project it right, that guy's going to be better when he plays with better competition. So are they coachable? Can we fix their swings? What will they be like if... And Luke Adela was a projector scout. Hey, y'all, that's our God. He sees what he can do with your life. He doesn't choose you just to get you to heaven. Listen, everybody wants you to go to heaven. I want you to go to heaven. God wants you to go to heaven. But that's not the only point. God picks you. He elects you. He says, hey, you based on what he sees is going to happen. That if you trust him and love him with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind and strength, if you are that kind of person and you obey him, he sees what's going to happen out of the prison with you. He sees what's going to happen at John Hopkins Bible Club with you in it. He sees what's going to happen as you become a pro-life activist. He sees what happens when you decide to be a witness like Paul decided to be a witness. He sees what's going to happen when you become a responsible member of a church. He sees it. And he's a projection God. In other words, the most important thing about you today is not your past. The most important thing about you today is not even your current, what's going on right now. The most important thing about you is what's going to happen. And I'm excited about it, and you ought to be excited about it too. Listen, he says to Abram, Abram, I want you to leave your family. I want you to leave your wealth, and I want you to go to my way, and I will make you a great nation. Abram's got to be thinking, really? You, You want me to leave all this? Because of something that's going to happen in the future that I really can't see? Yeah, says God, that's what I want. Abram was crazy enough to say, all right, let's go. Jesus walks up to some fisherman, tax collector, some businessman. He says, hey, follow me. I will make you and your life extraordinary. Takes faith, but they do it. And God comes to you today and says, listen, trust me. I will make your life, not just in heaven, but today. And in future days, I will make your life extraordinary. Will you trust me for that? He's a projection God. He believes in you.
I think the next thing is this. The Holy Spirit alters destiny through fellowship. Look at verse 10. He said, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. Then look at verse 19. For several days he was with the disciples at Damascus. Now what I'd like for you to do is in your Bible, real quick, turn to the ninth chapter. And I'd like for you to look at verse 5 with me. And mark it up in your Bible, do whatever you have to do, because this is important. Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, who are you, Lord? And Jesus said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Whoa. Now, Saul's got to be thinking, Jesus is dead. I'm not persecuting Jesus. I'm persecuting the church. And in that statement right there, Jesus says, I am at one in unity with the church. Jesus and the church are the same thing. So I want you. And by the way, when we call ourselves the body of Christ, what do you think we're saying? We are his hands. We are his feet. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. I know you're thinking you're... Well, let's just go with that theme. I'm Jesus. I'm the church whom you're persecuting. Guess who he uses to minister to Saul? He uses the same church. Ananias turns around and loves on Saul. And then it says down there, and not only that, but he was with the disciples in Damascus. And they undoubtedly loved on him. And because of that love, you see the greatest missionary of all times launched. The church that he was persecuting turns around and ministers to him. Do you suppose we could ever get to the place, you know, we, we got no persecution in this country. But do you suppose we could ever get to the place where we were abused and we could turn around and love the very ones that were abusing us? That takes a miracle. And God's calling us to that miracle. I want to teach you a little historical lesson. John Wesley was an incredible preacher. He'd go out and you know, stand on a stump. Or, or First time he ever did this, he actually stood up on his father's grave. Literally got up on top of it and began preaching away. And he'd just go to a place. And they say the way that this is typically done is he'd go to whatever the, the, the main part of town was, uh, him and his brother or whoever he could get with him would sing a song. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. And you know, that doesn't often happen in a small town where two nutcases are singing on the steps. And so he'd get a bunch of people, dozens of people that would kind of get around him. And he'd say, my name is John Wesley, and I'm going to be preaching out in that field tomorrow morning at 5 a.m. See you there. He'd come out there, and there'd be hundreds Sometimes thousands of people out there Word would go from village to village and they'd just come piling out to go hear John Wesley. So he did this in a place called Pembrokeshire. And uh, he wrote about his experiences in Pembrokeshire. He says, you know, we preached in Pembrokeshire and what's fascinating is that nine in ten of the once awakened are now faster asleep than ever in Pembrokeshire. You want to know why? He says, because we tried to preach there without forming small groups, without forming any kind of fellowship. And anytime you preach the gospel 
without forming fellowship, you're setting people up for Satan. And I want you to know here, Dayspring, if you're in this church and you're not in a small group fellowship, you are set up for Satan. You're set up to get pummeled because that's the way the kingdom of God operates. You're made in his image. And guess what? He is a small group. God is a small group. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, made in that image. He wants you to be in one too. And so this is what happens. John Wesley said, no more. We're never going to preach again in a place where we do not follow up. And so he started saying, let me be the guy that doesn't just preach, but we establish small groups after I leave everywhere we go. And that was what they call the great Wesleyan revival of the 18th century. Is everybody started getting excited and loving Jesus and getting in groups. And they were fellowshipping one with another. And the revival began that way. Lots of people want revival in America. Not many people want to do the hard work of small groups, of fellowship, of getting together with people where iron sharpens iron. But God's calling you to that. I, really, I get one amen for that. Thanks, Miss Rose. Can I say it again? You're made in the image of God. It's a small group image. And He wants you in a small group. He wants you in a fellowship. And frankly, this isn't fellowship enough. You can slip in and out of here just as fast as you can and say nothing to nobody. Or at best you say, yeah, I had a, had a pretty decent week. Good, I'm glad you had a decent week. And then go to your car. That's not fellowship. Or if it is, it's a very, very thin slice of fellowship. He wants you in intimacy with people so that you can learn and grow. I love what Peter Berger, in seminary I read a book called A Rumor of Angels. And this is what Peter Berger says. He says, once someone becomes convinced that the faith is the faith, he says, they've got to begin associating, I love this term, with like-minded deviants. And they've got to associate with them very closely indeed. You say, what, like-minded deviants? What's that? Well, if you are a Christian today, you are deviating from the norm, right? We know that in the Old Testament there's a word holy, and the opposite of holy is profane. But profane doesn't mean vulgar. Profane means common. So holiness really means uncommon. And if you are uncommon, that means you're deviating from the faith. So once you come to know Jesus, you've got to associate with like minded uncommoners, like-minded deviants, and huddle very closely indeed, because they're going to provide for you the perspective needed to go back out there in the unfaithful world and live life like it ought to be lived, as long as you can come back to those deviants. Jesus, make it so at Dayspring. Let us be people of deviation, but people who encourage one another in the deviation to continue to be holy even as you are holy. The Holy Spirit alters destiny through fellowship. And then there's this. The Holy Spirit uses suffering. He says it right here in verse 16. Show him. I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. We were in small group, small discipleship group this week. One of us said, you know, the natural habitat for American Christianity is comfort. And we will do just about anything possible to stay in that comfort zone. We do not want to be uncomfortable. By the way, American Christianity, boy, you talk about, hey, we're, we're here today, aren't we? 
Talk about comfortable. Was this band not incredible today? The chairs you're sitting in right now. Whew. Air conditioning. Hey, I'd, I'd like to see how long a church like this one would last if in July you walked in here it's 95 degrees. Huh? I mean, we love our comfort. We will do anything for our comfort. We will say no to anything that's not comfortable. Why? That's just the way we roll. But here, I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. The natural habitat for Saul will not be comfort. It will be discomfort and suffering. Now, if you knew that was the gospel, would you come to it? If you knew you had to deny yourself, take up the cross, and follow Jesus, would you do it? Or are you going to go along with that Holcomb that says, name it and claim it, and he'll give you anything you want? It's not just Holcomb, it's heresy. I remember a radio program was on a few years ago, and the host said, I was actually being interviewed. That doesn't happen much. I'm usually the loud mouth doing the interviewing. But the interviewer said to me, you know, Matt, he said this on the radio, you know, Matt, I know you stand where I stand on religious liberties. We're losing them, and we need to fight to keep them. I said, that's not my position. He said, it's not? I said, no, sir, it's not. I said, look around the world where the Spirit is moving. He's moving wherever there's discomfort and suffering, wherever there's crosses and blood. That's where the Spirit is moving. That's where the Spirit is moving. He says, I I said, listen, where there's a huge dearth of religious liberty, that's where the Spirit is on the move. I'm grateful for liberty, and I want to have religious liberty in this country. But having said that, I have to ask myself, if it's worth having that religious liberty, if it means less presence and movement of Almighty God. If you knew that we could shuck all our religious liberty today in America and tomorrow enjoy revival and the presence of God, would you do it? And most evangelicals would not because we like religious liberty more than we like Jesus. And then (laughs) I was on another program. This time I was doing the interviewing. Had a Chinese believer on. And wrapping it up, I just said to him, at the end, listen, would you mind, would you let me pray for you and the church in China? Uh, for the state to lift its persecution on the believers of your nation. He kind of demurred on that. He, he said, well, I wonder. I would just be nice. I thought it would be a sweet little thing to do to wrap up the interview. He goes, really, I wonder, Matt, if we should pray for that. We ask ourselves that question all the time. Suffering means a pure church here in China. Only the sincere will come when they're suffering and persecution and will want to be a part of it. And what we find is people are attracted to a pure church. If the suffering is alleviated, if there is no persecution, we will become an impure church. And when we are an impure church, people will not be attracted to it and revival will be thwarted. You know, honestly, I don't know how I ended the interview. Okay, I won't pray. I don't, know, I don't know what I said. I don't know what I said. I got out of there somehow. <laughs> I thought, oh my goodness. Imagine that. We love Jesus so much. 
We want the suffering to continue? You tell Saul how much he's going to suffer for your name? Wow. The last thing is this. The Holy Spirit inspires witness. Here you have a guy that hated Christianity one day, and not many days later, he is proclaiming Jesus. Look at verse 20. Proclaiming Jesus in the synagogue, saying, Now the synagogues, those aren't Christian centers. Those are Jewish centers, right? He's going to the Jews, and he's saying, He is, Jesus is, the Son of God. Woo! So that leads to verse 23. When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. Wow! Stanley Jones writes in one of his books, an English bishop said, wherever Paul went, he started a revolution. But the English bishop said, wherever I go, they serve me tea. If you want a nice, sweet Christianity that meets all your needs, biblical faith is not the faith for you. If you want the possibility of suffering and persecution, the possibility of blood flowing for your body because of your faith, but also the possibility of love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness, the self-control of a life with meaning and purpose and holiness. And this is the faith for you. Lord Jesus, we worship you today as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, but the King who calls us to destiny. And Jesus, you did an extraordinary thing in Saul's life that day. We want you to do an extraordinary thing in ours. Not just call us. I think most would hear, be here today saying, I've called and I've answered. But Jesus, could you call us to something deeper? Could you call us to something more? Could you call us to greater responsibility? This church, Lord Jesus, can handle the responsibility by your grace. So we ask for more. You want us to do more? We want to be more great commission people, more a great commandment people. So Jesus, we've heard your call. Now could we hear your deeper call? Jesus, do something extraordinary in every individual here today. Lord, and as much as you do that, we'll give you praise and glory and honor. We love you today, Lord Jesus, with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind. We thank you for sending the Spirit of God, even today, to fill us to the brim, that we might be your holy people. In the name, the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen. God bless you, Dayspring. Thank you.